I was talking to Doug earlier today about sometimes how I make the simple things complex. Um, I had in mind, because of you know, honoring the students and membership class tonight and the different things that we have going on, that I would just come in here and do a, a nice short little talk. I do still hope that it's short, uh, but as I was preparing it, just things kept, kept coming up. And I feel the best way to introduce what I'm about to say is, is this. I kind of, one more note of preface, I usually try to do my due diligence in setting the text like in its proper literary and historical context. Um, I'm still going to do that, but today it's going to be less so. There's one thing that I want to say that I might not get a chance to say. Last week, we looked at the structure of, um, I believe it was Isaiah 41, 1 through 20, and how that structure was. First, we had like a courtroom scene. Then we had uh, God announcing his servant. Then we had this idea of restoration and renewal and reversal. The same thing is happening in, in what Hannah just read. It's still there. We have the courtroom scene where Yahweh again is asking these gods to say something. There's a moment there where in between verse 4, um, 20, 23 and 24, there's like a pause there. And he goes on to say, you're nothing. There's nothing that you can say. And God is continually demonstrating himself to be in this set of texts one who is worthy of praise and honor and adoration in contrast to the gods in Babylon, who, according to most people, it would seem as though they were the gods worthy of worship. Israel had been destroyed. Yahweh had been made a spectacle of, more or less. The people had been um, cast out of the land. And when you look around, it seems as though Marduk, you know, the god of Babylon, is the one who's doing things, moving and shaking. So for the people in Israel at that time, it would seem as though Marduk was the one worthy of, of worship, but the poet keeps coming back and saying, nope, 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 it's Yahweh. It's still Yahweh. It will always be Yahweh. Don't forget that. And then the poet launches into this um, expanded text about the servant, and that's what I want to focus on today. But in order to do that, I want to talk about this. When I was growing up, um, I believe this was in the year 2003, I had just graduated college, and I was moving into seminary. The way I chose to um, go about starting my seminary career was to do a summer Hebrew intensive. It sounds awesome, and you know you love it. So I would go uh, June, July, and August, four days a week for like five or six hours a day learning Hebrew. How I would decompress from that was I would go home, and somehow I stumbled onto season one DVDs of Lost. I remember, this was also the same time when uh, those DVD box sets of TV series were just coming out, and you know, there's nothing better than a show that you love, getting either that or the new season comes out on Netflix, and you just tear through stuff, right? You just sit down, throw on your sweatpants, and you just start going one, two, three. 24? Thank you very much. Yeah, some, some of those shows, they just like hook you in um, and you just want to sit there and see how, how the story unfolds. Lost was that for me for quite some time because it had just such great storylines and characters and the plot twists. Any Lost fans in the house or am I just speaking to the, okay, good handful of you. Um, the first time through when you watch it, you're, you're hooked because you have no idea how it's going to turn out. You have no idea how all of these different people's stories come together and converge. Uh, and the, the directors were very good about giving you little snippets that would show that to you. And then we get to the finale. Something that you have been waiting for for s 
so long. You guys are in trouble because this is my whole talk. <laughs> no, I'll keep it. I'll, I'll keep the details to myself. Um, but you get to the finale. And the whole time of this series, the, the creators had said, it will be gratifying, you will get answers, you will get conclusions, you'll get to know all these things that you have been struggling with for quite some time. And then you sit down, and I remember we came home from church, and I was in California, and I made Kate go into a different room because Kate doesn't watch Lost, and I just had to, like, focus for a couple hours. You know, like, if you've ever had a Lost viewing party, it's like you got people talking, like, who's that? Who's the bald guy? What's that smoke? What's that polar bear doing? It's like, you have, like, you shouldn't be here right now. Go eat some chips. So, I just wanted my space, and as it was unfolding, I mean, I was, I was hooked. I know, like, a lot of people hated the finale. That's the spoiler. I'll give you that. A lot of people hated it. It wasn't gratifying. It didn't answer all your questions. But I loved it. And I rewatched it last night just to see if I could still, like, get that same thing. And I could. Like, I was, like, on the verge of tears. I was, like, seeing how these stories were coming together. And I was, I was just really invested into it. But it was different because I knew the ending of the story. Now that you know the ending of Lost, if you go back and rewatch seasons one through, you know, six, it's totally different. The same thing could be said about uh, the sixth sense. I will give this spoiler because if you haven't seen it, I mean, the Statue of Limitations are so far gone now where it shouldn't even qualify. But, you know, Bruce Willis is dead. <laughs> now that you know that, when you go back and rewatch it, you start to see details. You start to see things in the movie that you missed the first time. It's exhilarating to see something the first time through because you don't know where it's going. Sometimes it's cool when you watch something and you forget if you're that old. I am now. Um, but when you know the ending, it completely impacts how you read the story. As Christians, we read the story of the Bible with the end in mind, and so did the authors of the New Testament. Basically what happens is, Jesus' death and his resurrection completely alter everything. You can no longer dip into Isaiah and see these images in their first historical context without seeing Jesus front and center. One writer puts it this way, the story of Jesus is the culmination or the climax of the story of the Old Testament. So if you have the Old Testament, it's leading to Jesus. You know, from creation, uh, the fall, we have Abraham, God building up a people, Israel, it's all leading to this moment where Jesus becomes everything that Israel ever needed in ways that they never expected. We miss that as Christians. There's like that culmination of the story, it's like it's like a, this is a terrible analogy, it's like the Heaven Night Shyamalan twist. <laughs> it's a twist, you know? So Jesus is utterly surprising in how he concludes the story. And now that we know that ending, when we read the Old Testament again, we can, we do our best maybe to, to see things through like that first time on the couch watching Lost, but we can't oftentimes mute uh, who Jesus is. So if this is true, that Jesus is the culmination of the Old Testament, and we see Jesus in the Old Testament, this affects how we read Isaiah. And I'm going to say that it especially affects how we read the servant songs. Um, Isaiah 42, 1 through 9 would be the first of four servant songs. And since the late 1800s, one scholar in particular by the name of uh, Bernard Doom uh, called attention <coughs> to these songs, and there's the references right there. And some suggested that these songs were late additions that someone wrote 
much later and then just put into the story. It's like they don't quite fit there. Other people have disagreed with that, as they often do, and people have just started arguing about how these stories fit into uh, the text of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah 40 through 55. But regardless, many Christians have skipped this first reading, this servant, who is it, in its first historical context, and have just said, that's Jesus. It's especially the case when we look at Isaiah 53, which is the fourth of the servant songs, which says things like, He possessed no splendid form for us to see, no desirable appearance. He was despised and avoided by others, a man who suffered, who knew sickness well. Like for most of us, that's, that's a Jesus text. It's, it was certainly our sickness that he carried and our sufferings that he bore, but we thought him afflicted, struck down by God, and tormented. He was pierced because of our rebellions and crushed because of our crimes. He bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds we are healed. You can't look at that text in Isaiah 53 and say, I wonder who Isaiah is talking about. I wonder who the poet is talking about in that historical context. You immediately skip 500 years and say, it's Jesus and nobody in between. Like sheep, we have all wandered away, each going its own way, but the Lord let fall on him all of our crimes. He was oppressed and tormented, but didn't open his mouth like a lamb before, um, like a lamb being brought to slaughter, like a ewe silent before her shearers. He didn't open his mouth. Like these are Jesus' texts. This is who we have, for many of us, grown up hearing about um, and seeing the gospel in light of this sort of stuff. Tonight, though, I want to study the first servant song, specifically in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. I want to set it in its historical context first. Then I want to see Jesus in light of it. And then I actually want to go a step beyond that and see us in light of it, too. So we have like a a threefold thing, making the simple maybe more complex than it needs to be. Uh, But I think there's layers here that we need to see that are going to set us up for the next few chapters of this book. We really did not plan this series out well. Um, Most people would say, make sure you're starting a new series in September when people are going to want to come back to church because they might take the summer off and we'll be like knee deep into Isaiah, thick into the midst of prophecy and crazy stuff. I hope you're okay with that. Even as Hannah was reading this text though, man, it's just like, I hope you get it. It's so beautiful, and it's so rich, and it's so just thick with with meaning. So I want to just begin kind of, as my math teacher used to say, beating the proverbial dead horse that we've been beating for the last couple of weeks. Um, Everything in Isaiah is framed by exile. Remember, Israel has been removed from the land, they've, uh, they've seen their, their people and their temple and their homes destroyed, they've been removed for the most part, they've lost their land, they've lost their identity, they've lost their relationship, they've lost ultimately hope. There are people sitting by the rivers of Babylon, hanging their harps on the trees saying, what can we sing now? God has not shown up for us, and then we have other prophets like Jeremiah saying, make the best of the worst situation, buy a house, start a family, plant a garden in Babylon, which totally goes counter to everything that they've ever heard before. Try to always have this in the front of your head. This text is completely dramatic, and it's occurring in a moment in history that is filled with significance, a moment in history that we oftentimes miss. 
One author says this. This is Eugene Peterson, who's pretty awesome. He um, translated the message, or at least began that work and uh, brought it to its fulfillment. Pretty awesome when a guy just has his morning devos in the Greek and the Hebrew and then makes a Bible translation out of it. I think that's pretty cool. He says, and then, out of nowhere, remember, exile, destruction, a hundred years of silence in between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40. Out of silence, out, out of nowhere, a voice, a powerful, persuasive, convincing voice. The voice of a preacher who put the people on their feet again. The voice of a preacher who gave them a living God, spoke God into their lives in such a way that they realized that they were still, in spite of all the Babylonian taunts, the people of God. He restores their identity to them as they're sitting by the rivers of Babylon. The poet, Isaiah, says, you're still God's people. Comfort. He will tend you like a flock. I hope you're getting these images. You are still my servant. I have chosen you. I will uphold you. Okay, so this is, this is the context. I believe I have four things that I want to say about these nine verses, and then we'll move to Jesus. The first thing is understanding the servant. So in the very first verse, it says, uh, this is the first verse of chapter 42. It says, but here is my servant, the one I uphold, my chosen, who brings me delight. If we're asking questions about this set of texts, the first question is, who is the servant? In the book of Isaiah, we have four different um, suggestions, four different people that are labeled servant throughout the beginning chapters. One would be Isaiah himself, one would be Eliakim, one would be David, and then finally one is Jacob and Israel in the text that we looked at last week. Okay, I know this is pretty thick stuff, so stay with me for a minute. Out of all these options, it seems like the best fit is Israel as a people is functioning as the servant in that first reading of Isaiah. On the couch, watching season one of Lost, it's Israel who is fulfilling this role, okay? So here, just look how it, it's framed in chapter 48. But you, Israel, my servant, same Hebrew word, Jacob, whom I have chosen, same Hebrew root, um, offspring of Abraham, who I love, I will strengthen you, I will surely help you, I will hold you or uphold you. Again, same Hebrew verb being used there. There's all these correspondences between language and saying, it's almost like in chapter 42, it's saying, behold, look, my servant. Yeah, the one I was just talking to you about in chapter 41, Israel, the one that I'm upholding, the one that I've chosen, the one that I'm with, the one that I'm fighting for, the one that I love, the one that I am completely and utterly invested in, that's the servant. Don't skip just to Jesus and miss the role that Israel fulfills in this moment um, in its historical context. The second thing, and I'm going to kind of cruise through these points, I think, hopefully, um, is the idea of justice. So the second question is, now that we know that the servant is probably associated with Israel, what do they do? In this text, it says, I've put my spirit upon him, upon Israel, and he will bring justice to the nations he won't break like a bruised reed. He won't extinguish a faint wick, but he will surely bring justice. He won't be extinguished or broken until he has established justice. In the course of four verses, it's justice, 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 justice. In the midst of injustice, in the midst of exile, suffering, destruction, complete and utter torment, it's Israel functioning to establish justice again. The servant is announcing that God is about to do a work of justice. And in so doing, Israel, as the ambassadors or the ones who are proclaiming this message, they're almost like implementing this justice. If a king has a message 
and he sends his messenger, and the messenger says, hey, the king wants you to do this, what happens? They do it. Yeah, right. So in the same way, Yahweh has a plan, God has a plan, justice will be restored. And Israel is the one who's announcing that, and when they announce that, it will be done because that's what God wants to do, to establish justice. The third question is, what does this establishment of justice look like? Well, it looks like a reordering of social life and social power. So there's poor, there's oppressed, there's broken, there's people on the bottom rung of the hierarchy, there's people um, in the crosshairs of political power or people that are over them. We even see this today. Israel is that agent that says, that's not how it should be, and they begin to fight for the vulnerable. They begin to fight for the people that might not be able to fight for themselves. But it's more than just social justice. When we think about justice, let's hear some ideas. How do we as a church go about establishing justice? This is a bad sign. <laughs> Donating money, yep. Yep, potentially emergency response, especially in things like Oklahoma City and, uh, or Oklahoma, I should say. What else? Yeah. We go to this street or we go to that street or we go to this people group and we, we come in with a, a truck filled with sandwiches after church and we hand them, hand them out and then we go home and we say, ha, justice. Justice has been served. False. You know? We can pat ourselves on the back for things that we just talked about, like, oh, look at us. We gave this, this much money and we're meeting all of these needs in the community and we haven't talked to one person that we've given this money to. Money's great. Money's good. We need to be financially invested in these sorts of things, but justice goes beyond just that sort of let's make ourselves feel good into the realm of meeting people where they are, becoming vulnerable with the vulnerable, becoming, in a sense, poor with the poor, becoming uh, what those people need. And we see that in this text. We're attending, or Israel is attending to the needs of the vulnerable, and they're doing this in very, very, very uh, different ways. I'm not sure if I'm going to get into this in a, in a moment here, but in contrast to Babylon, they won't break a bruised reed. They won't extinguish a faint wick. The people, like, on their last inch of rope that Babylon would just kick off and say, now what? I mean, Israel was the ones who go down to that level and begin to crawl back up the rope with them. They're not going to snap the reed in half. They're not going to extinguish the, the wick. They're going to, to meet them where they are. And this kind of leads us into this uh, third point here. The servant, Israel, the people, there's going to be a moment of suffering in how they go about trying to establish this justice. So the, the fourth question is, what is this going to cost them? Well, the verb here, uh, tsa'ak, is a verb used for cry out, but it's not used just to, to go out on a street corner and read your Bible and proclaim something. It's one of, that's kind of like a pain or something that people are crying out in distress. And the thought here is the servant might suffer due to this message of justice. They might suffer due to becoming vulnerable with the vulnerable. They might suffer for uh, proclaiming what it is that God wants to do in this world. 
in the midst of that, they're not going to cry out or shout aloud, um, but they're going to surely bring justice. They're becoming vulnerable to the vulnerable, and they're offering a new way, a way that says it's not just falling in line with Babylon. It's not just falling in line with these other rival gods. It's not just calling defeat defeat. It's beginning to establish a new social order, beginning to establish something that's completely different where justice is, um, is at stake. The servant, according to one scholar, the servant does not cry out when oppressed, does not move through the streets calling for pity, does not push aside the weak in the hope of winning conventional power to his cause. The servant bears witness with quiet, patient gentleness, confident that the nations will be drawn to God's reign of justice not by dint of human force but by attraction to embodied compassion with righteousness. And the only way that this happens is to live consistently in the service of the justice of God, uh, is to pattern one's life on the nature of God. This is a huge call for Israel to become what people need to establish social order in a different way, to, um, to fight for justice and ultimately to achieve restoration. So after identifying the servant, um, seeing what, this, what their task is, what it's going to cost them, all these things, it's leading to, in my mind, this text here in Isaiah 42.7, which is saying, um, you're going to become, as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, you're going to open blind eyes, you're going to lead prisoners from prison and those who sit in darkness from the dungeon. The fifth question would be, what is this going to achieve? It's going to achieve complete and utter restoration, not just spiritually physically, tangibly, in ways that you can feel and experience and, um, and see. It's not just a van full of sandwiches. It's not just an, a $50 donation. It's you're getting your hands dirty and you're seeing things happen in a completely restorative and transformative way. If we take this idea and we then, now knowing what we know here with Israel being the servant, seeing how that compares or is fulfilled in Jesus, what's interesting is the gospel authors make this very clear. In Matthew chapter 12, we have a story of Jesus who goes into the synagogue and there's a man there with a withered hand and the Pharisees or a group of people ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Jesus says to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the others. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how they could destroy him. See what's happening here. When we think about Jesus and what we've reduced Jesus to in the church is one who offers spiritual restoration, spiritual fulfillment, takes all your sins and washes them clean. But in the Gospels, Jesus, yeah, he did that, but he also took the withered hand and strengthens it. He takes the people that are blind and gives them sight. He takes the people that are dead, deceased, ceasing to live, and raises them from the dead. If that's not a restoration or a reversal, I don't know what is. But we've taken all of that stuff and tamed it and turned it into an altar call. We've turned it into a commitment card. 
We've turned it into, help me to stop looking at this on the computer screen or help me to stop doing this or help me to stop this or that or like these, these sins. We've, we've, we've lo- located the power of Jesus and the restorative work that he does simply and solely in the individual lives of people transforming sin into not sin. What's interesting about this story of Jesus healing this guy, Matthew has his own commentary on this. He continues in verse 15 of chapter 12. It says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He's looking at our text in Isaiah 42. Even the New Testament authors saw in Jesus the fulfillment of the servant, seeing he's the one that's bringing about this restoration. He's the one that has the spirit on him that's doing these great things. He's the one that's concerned completely and utterly with justice and transformation and restoration in ways that the prophet could only hope would be true. In light of the end of the story, they're rereading the beginning of the story. Gospel authors are classic for doing the scene, Jesus in these texts. The finale mm-hmm. is the empty tomb. So for the gospel authors, that pivotal moment in the series was Jesus' death and resurrection and how that completely and utterly transformed how they saw everything. You couldn't read the Old Testament without Jesus' eyes anymore. You couldn't read the Old Testament and talk about a servant who was there to bring about justice and not see Jesus anymore. I think we've lost that, not just in how we read the Old Testament. I think we've lost that in how we live life. I don't think we see Jesus everywhere. I don't think we even try to on most days. I don't think that the empty tomb is the finale that completely transforms how we view the world and how we view ourselves and how we view the person down the street and the person in the next cubicle, our friends, our family, the relationships that we struggle with. I don't know if Jesus has become that twist in the story of our lives that is calling us to go about things in a different way. I want to close with this. I want to look at these same five questions that we asked about Isaiah 42 and ask them about ourselves because I think it works out pretty neat how this, how this happens. In light of Jesus, in light of the fulfillment of that story, who is the servant? Throughout the scriptures, we are servants of God. We are the ones who serve him. We are the ones who attempt to live faithfully for him. If we could put ourselves into that text, see ourselves as the servant, we could also see ourselves as those who care about justice, not just through the giving that we we have and the sandwiches that we hand out to people. That's all great. I'm not trying to discourage that. But seeing justice as becoming vulnerable with the vulnerable, mourning with those who mourn, weeping with those who weep, living in the midst of that brokenness, not just as an event that we do for an hour a week, but as as a lifestyle that, that we've chosen. What does that look like? It looks like we fight to reorder the, the social constructs of, of this world. 
the poor and the powerless, we speak for them. The people that can't pay for their daycare, we pay for their daycare. The people that can't um, get the medical attention that they need, we fight for them. We, we, we invest ourselves in those people because those are the people that Jesus invested himself in as well. We've lost the art of getting our hands dirty, and please do not see this as me going like this. It looks more like this. Because my life is so easy. Um, but if you, if you take the scriptures at, at face value, it's calling us to something a bit more difficult. What is this going to cost? A lot. And most of us aren't okay with that. I talked in chapel a few months ago, and my text was the one where Jesus says, unless you hate your father or mother, you can't follow me. <laughs> I don't really think they had an, any idea what was happening in that moment. Um, I don't even know if I do on most days. The call to follow Christ is a call that trumps everything else. It's a call that even he himself would say is going to cost you something. If you're going to care about people and care about justice and care about Jesus, it's going to cost you something, whether it be status, whether it be um, importance, whether it be finances, whether it be time, whether it be all these things, it's going to cost you something. But what will this achieve? If we live this out, if we live this gospel out, I think it can achieve all sorts of things. It can achieve restoration. It can achieve transformation, not just spiritually, but physically, tangibly, in ways that you can touch and feel and experience. If we actually bought in to the message of Jesus, if we actually bought into the fact that we have been transformed because of who he is, if we actually bought into, unless you hate your father or mother, you can't follow me, unless we actually bought into the gospel changes everything, if we bought into that, we can change the world. It sounds idealistic, and it is, but we might be able to change our homes and our relationships and the, the people that we have around us at work that we've written off a long time ago. If we actually believe that Jesus cares about justice and people and restoring things back to how they should be, think of all the things that could happen. So there's twofold application here and then I'm done. One, um, do you experience that transformation in your own life? That's the first place to start. Are the things that I'm talking about completely and utterly foreign to you? Not just in how you implement them, but how you experience them. I want to encourage you that Jesus is not just an ethereal concept that we talk about in these, between these walls. I want to commend to you this idea, as I've been commending to you for the past few weeks, there is comfort, there is peace, there is restoration, because Jesus has chosen you, will uphold you, loves you, cares about you, is concerned for you, and will fight for you as one who has become vulnerable for the vulnerable. The second part of that is if you've already experienced that, then how are you implementing that as an ambassador of Jesus? How are you living out the call to be the servant here and now? How are we fighting for justice? How are we even having the eyes to see the vulnerable and meeting the needs of those, of those folks? And how are we um, 
moving beyond just seeing that as this street or that street or this people group or that people group and seeing that brokenness and that vulnerability in the lives of people that have more money than they know what to do with. The call to restore is not just a call to restore in these kind of fake social justice concepts that we've created. It's a call to, to, to meet people where they are and to give them the gospel. And I hope that that's a call that we take seriously, and I hope that's a call that energizes us and inspires us and encourages us um, as we go.